So Elon Musk is at it again, shaking up the automotive industry. As we're going to press, so to speak, with this episode series, this peripatetic tech titan announced that Tesla is about to offer for sale its long-anticipated Cybertruck, a battery offering in the coveted and ridiculously profitable pickup truck category. You probably know this, but the top three selling vehicles in America last year were pickup trucks. Seven out of 10 of the top uh, selling vehicles overall in America were trucks. The number one selling vehicle in America was the Ford F-150, outselling the nearly, by nearly 300% the Tesla Model Y SUV. That fact alone, by the way, explains why Ford is selling an electric version of the F-150 called the Lightning, or at least trying to sell it. Is it a coincidence that Ford just slashed the sales price of that Lightning? And is it a coincidence that Ford is losing money, billions of dollars, making and selling EVs? I mean, Tesla is the number one luxury car brand in the U.S. right now, accounting for almost one-third of all cars sold in that specific coveted profitable category of luxury cars. I mean, there's no doubt in some quarters, there's a lot of enthusiasm for EVs. But at the same time, as of right now, the overall dealer inventory of EVs is double that for conventional cars. There isn't a lot of enthusiasm uh, or equal enthusiasm in the general car market, at least not right now, as given the massive pileup of unsold EVs. So the key question for automakers, it's even an existential question as they pour collectively hundreds of billions of dollars into the EV business. The, the key existential question is, will consumers buy what they plan to build? You know, the build it and they will come uh, trope. Uh, for what it's worth, that approach uh, to products has a pretty poor track record with only a handful of exceptions. And the exceptions don't prove the rule, as they say. In any case, the issue we're talking about in this series of episodes is anchored in the fact that Americans and nearly all citizens everywhere want to own cars. Car ownership is a freedom enabling and for the record, still a, lu a luxury for the majority uh, of humans on this planet. The issue that's on the table that we're talking about is not whether people want cars. That's what we talked about in the first episode, part one of this series. And if you haven't listened, you can go there, and if you don't want to listen, this episode stands alone in its content. So the the episode, the, sort of the issue on uh, on the table is whether or not most, if not all, cars will soon be battery powered, and what will happen in the attempt to subsidize, mandate, or even force such a transition in the near future. By near future, I mean within a decade or two. Well, since the core motivation, indeed, arguably. The only motivation for government mandates and subsidies uh, for EVs is the claim of radical CO2, carbon dioxide reductions, that are ostensibly going to come from a world with far more EVs. So in this episode, we'll lift the hood, to use the obvious metaphor, on the realities of the supply chain emissions from EVs, the emissions that occur when EVs are fabricated, and then later the issue, the emissions that occur when EVs are fueled, when they're parked. EVs are a little different, obviously, in where the emissions come from. In fact, fundamentally, this is, the, this is a, a technical and obvious reality. Unlike cars with internal combustion engines, 
it's actually impossible to measure an EV CO2 emissions. I mean, self-evidently, there are no emissions when you're driving an EV. The emissions occur elsewhere. They occur before the first mile is driven, again, when making the battery and the rest of the EV. And they occur, ironically enough, when the EV is parked, when it's not being driven, to recharge it, to refuel it, how the power plants operate. So those CO2 emissions that are directly associated with EV, the ones that are, in effect, most opaque, begin with the upstream industrial processes needed to acquire materials to fabricate the battery. The received wisdom, of course, is that EVs will have a, quote, uh, you know, unquote, huge impact on reducing emissions. Uh, it's stated everywhere, constantly in policy papers, op-eds, PR. Uh, whether the claimants know it or not, though, the idea that CO2 emissions will go down with EVs is entirely anchored in assumptions about the quantities and varieties of materials mined and processed and refined to make the battery. The scale of the upstream emissions in all of the mining and materials acquisition emerges from a you know, simple fact, one that I've talked about before and written about, but it's worth stating again. It, the upstream emissions emerge from the core fact that a typical EV battery weighs about a thousand pounds. And that thousand pound battery is replacing a fuel tank that holds about 80 pounds of gasoline. So that half ton battery is made not from steel, there is some steel in it, but from a wide range of minerals, including copper, nickel, aluminum, graphite, some cases cobalt, manganese, and of course, lithium. The critical issue is that the combined quantity of these uh, specialty and so-called energy minerals, the key fact is the quantity of those minerals is tenfold, that's a thousand percent greater to build an EV compared to building a conventional car. As the researchers at uh, the U.S. Uh, Argonne National Labs have pointed out, an excellent sort of overview analysis of this upstream emissions challenge, they, they, and I'll quote them because this is important, the relevant emissions data you need to determine the quantity of real-world emissions from EVs, quote, remains meager to non-existent, forcing researchers to resort to engineering calculations or the money word, approximations, end quote. Approximations. These are not measurements. These are calculations and approximations of CO2 emissions upstream. And as the International Energy Agency has said, data on the emissions intensity of these specific minerals, and again, I quote what they, what they wrote in their report. They don't brag about this, but they wrote this. The, the emissions from the various energy minerals, minerals quote, vary considerably across companies and regions, end quote. That's a, arguably a profound understatement. That what it means is that the fundamental fact to keep in mind, and as I'll illustrate with some facts and data, and I apologize, lots of facts and data, more so than normal in a typical episode or audio podcast, but this is a domain so rife with claims of facts that are simply wrong or uh, uh, silly wouldn't be the right word, but in many cases, silly or misguided that we have to deal with facts and numbers in order to understand what the, what, what the truth is of claims about CO2 emissions reductions. In fact, what I illustrated in my analysis and report, we're going to talk about 
in this podcast is that every claim for EVs reducing emissions, every number that's thrown out there, every data point is a rough estimate or it's just a guess. And it's based on averages and approximations and aspirations. That's the essence of what both the Argonne National Labs, International Energy Agency's researchers are writing, uh, somewhat opaquely buried in their big reports. It's not what people are saying at the top line. It's not the bottom line assumption either when you see these reports. But in the bodies of the analyses, what we find are averages and approximations and aspirations for how things might be or could be or should be, not what is. But the making these estimates in, entails a sort of a massive array of uh, what we'd call known unknowns about what happens upstream to get the materials and process the materials to fabricate the 1,000 pound battery or bigger, if it's a Ford F-150 Lightning, a 2,000 pound battery, or if it's a new Hummer EV, a 3,000 pound battery. That Think about that, the battery, the one component, the fuel tank, in a in an F-150 Lightning, or especially the Hummer, and likely the Cybertruck, don't have data on that yet, heavier than an entire conventional vehicle, just the battery. So let's dive in a little more deeply into these factors because they vary so wildly and the variations are, are big enough that they can wipe out anywhere from one half to all the emissions that are saved by not burning gasoline in the first place. So the features of EV emissions that constitute if you like a complete inversion uh, of the locus and the transparency uh, compared with combustion vehicles are where we have to sort of uh, do the deep dive. For a conventional car, uh, you know the emissions if you know the fuel mileage. The quantity of gasoline burned is directly measurable and essentially forecastable with precision. If I know how far you're going to drive, uh, I know how much fuel you're going to use, give or take a little bit, depending on uh, how fast you drive, obviously. But those are all noble factors. The CO2 emissions from a conventional car are the same regardless of when or where a car is refueled or when it's driven. Look, I could hear a few of you who are uh, cognoscenti who know that there are small temperature variations in internal combustion efficiency. That yes, it's true when it's cold, efficiency degrades somewhat uh, outside and you burn more fuel, therefore more CO2 at high altitudes, there's a small change, that's true. But fundamentally, uh, there's very little variations on a carbon dioxide emissions associated with burning gasoline. It doesn't matter where the fuel is burned, when you refuel a car, and fundamentally how old the car is or how new the car is, the time of day you refuel it, none of that matters, it's just the gallons of gasoline you consume. Of course, conventional cars have these hidden upstream emissions, just as battery electric vehicles do, uh, the energy used to build the vehicle and to create the gasoline. These are all knowable and countable. They're very transparent. Uh, about 10 to 20% of the total life cycle emissions of a conventional car are associated with the energy and emissions associated with making the car and fabricating the gasoline. So very knowable uh, when it comes to conventional vehicles, a lot of transparency in the industry and a lot of precision. Now, when it comes to estimating upstream emissions from an EV, well, you have to start with knowing that the energy, you have to know the energy that's used to fabricate the battery. You have to know the energy used to access the minerals and to process those minerals. All of these processes are incredibly energy intensive and far more expensive uh, in economics, uh, not just in 
energy terms than the iron and steel that are dominate the weight of a conventional vehicle. But 85% of the weight of a conventional vehicle, by the way, is constitutes iron and steel. They're uh, very common. Iron is used to make steel. Steel is made by mixing iron and nickel. Uh, iron is an extremely common element, and it's very energy efficient to uh, access and produce compared to the energy used to produce a pound of copper or nickel and aluminum that uh, dominate uh, the construction of EVs and EV batteries. In fact, there's uh, three times more weight of those metals than there is steel in an EV. So what you'd want to know is what is the aggregate energy cost to fabricate an EV battery? Well, okay. There's a lot of data on this in the technical literature, and the data vary by 300%, a threefold variation. So the, what do you do with that information? Well, we know what the average is. The average is that about 300 gallons of oil is in energy equivalent terms is used to fabricate a quantity of batteries that can store the energy equivalent to a gallon of gasoline. So again, think about this. You have to use, on average, upstream hydrocarbons about 300 gallons worth of oil to fabricate a quantity of batteries that can store the energy equivalent of one gallon of gasoline. So that's the energy debt. Now it could be 100 and it could be 600 or 700 gallons of oil. Nobody knows where it lies in that spectrum because it's a very complicated and labyrinthine upstream fuel cycle. But that so much upstream energy is necessarily used. It seems crazy, but again, it's anchored in the fact that about a thousand, rather, the thousand pound battery requires on the order of 500,000 pounds of the earth to be dug up and processed to make that one battery. This is the key fact that's, that seems to have been very sticky. I see it, uh, it emerged in my first minerals report a couple of years ago. If you didn't see it, you can find it online. It's a free report on mines and minerals, a reality check. Uh, in that, I document from the technical literature the fact that in order to make the 1,000-pound battery, you have to dig up on average around 500,000 pounds of earth per battery to get the minerals uh, you need to make that one battery. Why does that happen? This is a sidebar observation. If you're not familiar with how uh, minerals occur in the earth's crust, you might imagine, it's pretty obvious what you stated, is that you... You're searching for minerals with quote high ore grades. The gold rush of the uh, gold rush days in the Wild West, and also there was a gold rush into Northwest Territories of Canada, was because people found rock ore with a very high percentage of gold. Self-evidently, the higher the percentage of the mineral in the rock in the ore, the less of the rock you have to dig up to get the magic stuff, whether it's gold or copper, or nickel or graphite, aluminum. Ore grades are what matters, which we'll come to. But when you look at ore grades, what we do, we do know is that in order to uh, get the lithium you need, for example, a typical lithium battery, uh, even though it sounds like it should be all lithium, it's it's not. It's about 30 to 40 pounds of lithium in a thousand pound battery. doesn't sound like very much, but you have to process about 20,000 pounds of lithium brines to get the 30 pounds of pure lithium. If the battery has nickel, which a lot of batteries do, to get the amount of nickel in a typical battery, a battery has about 130 pounds, 100 130 pounds of nickel, you have to dig up about 10,000 pounds of ore and so on and so forth. To get the copper, a typical battery itself contains maybe 100 pounds of copper. That means you're going to have to dig up, because of ore grades, 
around 10,000 pounds of ore. But on top of that, you have to dig up all the rock that hides the ore, the overburden. And overburdens range from, it depends on where the rocks are, depends where you find them in the world, but they range from you know three to seven tons of dirt and rock have to be dug up first to get to one ton of ore. So if you do the arithmetic on this, you can see where this is going. To get to get the thousand pounds of minerals you need to make the battery, the metals, the pure metals, you need more than 100,000 pounds of ore and you need to dig up roughly 400,000 pounds of rock to get to the 100,000 pounds of ore. Hence, 500,000 pounds of the earth is dug up in service of getting to the 1,000 pounds of pure metals and minerals to constitute the battery. So accurately estimating the specific quantities, how much, where they are is really complicated. It's a very labyrinthine supply chain. There's a lot of uh, opacity. There's not a transparent industry compared to the oil and gas industry. And without knowing that, without knowing where the minerals come from, where they're dug up, who processes and where they're processed, you, you just don't know what the real world emissions are from getting all the minerals and materials to make that EV or specific EV or the next generation of EVs. There are dozens of technical papers on this. This is not, this is not a, a, a new concept I'm promoting, if you like, in the uh, mining industry or the domains of geology and geophysics. Ore grades uh, are well-established and well-understood. Humans have been mining uh, for a very long time. In fact, uh, economic historians point out that arguably the oldest industry careful with the use of the word industry, not profession. The oldest industry is arguably mining. Mining copper predates written, written human history. We've been mining and learning, we've been mining and we know a lot about mining uh, for a very long time because nothing exists uh, in the world without mining. Uh, we have to mine minerals to build the things that constitute society, everything. Uh, even, uh, even the magic internets all begin with mining somewhere. So there's dozens of papers in this stuff, which I've looked at and read, skimmed, uh, dived into more deeply. I, I say skim because in some cases, the papers are repeating what others have said, or some cases are just superficial and um, you know, not, not, not good scholarship, but they're worth, worth skimming and reading to see if there's any insights. That's what you do when you do research. You research other researchers. And look, there's the IEA did that. They did a terrific job. Uh, and what they found is that... Uh, if you count all those upstream emissions and you make averages, which is what the IEA did, you could conclude that compared to an internal combustion engine car, uh, that an electric vehicle under average conditions, average assumptions about global mining, average uses of uh, electricity to recharge the car, that the EV could reduce CO2 emissions compared to a conventional car by about 50%. And that's what gets publicized, this 50% number. And the numbers, uh, have the appearance of precision because they're you know, very specific numbers are touted or promoted. But when you read the IEA analysis, the International Energy Agency analysis, what you find out is that um, they have lots of assumptions and they're, you give them credit. They, 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 you know, if you read the paper, you've got to go through a couple hundred pages. You'll find the assumptions stated or in footnotes. And they do show what are called error bars in their graphs. Uh, the, the executive summaries use words like profound emissions reductions, yet the data in the report show that the variations on the known unknowns, again, they're known unknowns. We don't know where it lies, but we know there's variations. 
The variations in the IEA's own data show that an EV could yield no reductions in CO2 emissions under reasonable assumptions about the sources of the minerals and how the vehicles are charged. Uh, and they show in some cases an ideal situation, not average. You could get 70% emissions reductions. It's a pretty big variation from none to 70% and not knowing where it lies. That's the IEA data. But set aside the variations, the variations themselves are anchored in other assumptions. I'll say one very dubious assumption in the IEA data and typical of most studies is the assumption about the size of the battery. Obviously, the size of the battery determines the quantity of materials you're going to have to dig up and therefore the CO2 emissions associated with building the, building the battery. So you'd want to know what assumption is being made about the size of the battery. You can't just say the EV reduces CO2 emissions without telling me how big is the battery. And we, we know battery size matters because battery size is what gives range and range anxiety is the ostensible uh, fear that people have uh, and causing them to avoid buying an EV. By the way, I don't buy that story because as I said in the earlier episode, uh, almost all EVs that are sold have a range comparable to their gasoline counterparts. The issue is not range, it's charging time, which we'll come to in the next episode, but back to size of the battery. Size matters, as they say. So the IEA uh, assumption is that the battery pack is 40 kilowatt hours. If you're a EV cognoscenti, you know that that's less than one half the size of the battery in most the popular EVs. In all of the most popular EVs, the average battery size is twice as big, at least twice as big. That means making the battery for the, as the EVs that people buy involves twice as much uh, CO2 emissions as the battery size the IEA used to make their assumptions. So if you double the battery size, you double the upstream emissions and you erode dramatically the uh, quote unquote savings from not burning gasoline. The other thing that IEA does, uh, which is uh, we'll call it disputable, but I think intellectually shallow, is that they ignore the greater use of aluminum in the electric vehicle's body. So in addition to having a battery assumption that's too small, they don't take into account that what almost all EV makers do is they use far more aluminum in the body and the frame of the EV in order to offset the weight penalty of a thousand pound battery. I mean, if you have two cars of equal size, you get rid of the gasoline tank and the gasoline engine, you put in electric motors, which weigh roughly the same as the gasoline engine, and you replace an 80 pound gas tank with a thousand pound battery. Where do you save the weight? Well, you, you replace steel uh, in the body and frame with aluminum. Well, aluminum is incredibly energy intensive as by now everybody knows, that's why we recycle aluminum. And if you count that as well, and it should be, and it is an upstream CO2 emissions penalty for EVs, it further erodes the uh, emissions savings from not burning gasoline. Now there's been some very good studies on this. As I said, there's a lot of, a lot of study, there are a lot of studies in the technical literature, but uh, both Volvo and uh, Volkswagen have done excellent work on this uh, to their credit. And they've published this data and their work at their uh, corporate website. The uh, estimates uh, in the analysis that Volvo published at its, its website, it's, pre it's pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's a very honest piece of work, but they're, they're, uh, pointing out is that there are lots of upstream emissions and there's emissions from refueling the vehicles. So they want to provide a contact context, if you like. The Volkswagen did a similar study and that study was at their website uh, for the last, I think two, two and a half years, they pulled it off their website um, this past 
spring of 2023 without explanation. Uh, I'm deducing the explanation is not that they've changed their mind about the facts, uh, but I don't have that, don't know that for a fact, but because the model of car that they use for the analysis, their uh, the e-electric golf, uh, they stopped selling. So they pulled the analysis. But meanwhile, that analysis was done by other uh, technical organizations, taking the Volkswagen e-golf, which people drive, and comparing it to its diesel-powered or gasoline-powered versions. And when you look at the life cycle emissions, that is, again, counting upstream emissions to make the battery, and then the emissions from charging the battery, in this case, on the EU grid and using the average kilowatt hour on the EU grid, therefore the average CO2 emissions the EU grid, what the Volkswagen analysis found is that for the first roughly 60,000 miles of driving, the EV hit results in more CO2 emissions than just driving the conventional car. After 120,000 miles, the cumulative emissions from the EV in the, in the Volkswagen study are about 20% lower than the cumulative emissions from the same vehicle that's propelled by gasoline or, or diesel. Okay, it's 20% emissions reduction over 120,000 miles. That's not nothing. It, it, it ain't radical. That ain't dramatic. That ain't, that ain't world changing. And it's again, based on lots of assumptions. The assumption that most people are gonna drive an e-golf or a car like an e-golf, which just like, just like the International Energy Agency study has a small battery. It has a battery half the size of the vehicles that people wanna buy which I would suggest one might deduce is why they stopped selling that car because people want a car with a bigger battery and they want a bigger car so the cars that sell. So let's turn to the Volvo study, which is still, as of this broadcast, uh, visible at their website. They looked at a comparison on the life cycle emissions uh, between their recharge SUV, the electric SUV, and their gasoline SUV. So it's a midsize SUV. Uh, the battery pack is bigger on that one. It's 69 kilowatt hours. So it's halfway between the uh, silly tiny one that IEA uh, assumed and the, the size of battery that most, uh, the most popular cars, you know, the batteries that are in um, Tesla S&Ns and in this, uh, are running more like uh, 90 to 100 kilowatt hours. So, but 69 kilowatt hours is much bigger than 40, obviously. So they, they uh, attribute far more upstream emissions to the construction of the battery, which was good. And in, and they are comparing it to a, a far less fuel efficient vehicle, which is a gasoline, gasoline SUV. And what they they concluded is that, again, using the emissions for recharging their electric SUV on the average kilowatt hour on the European the EU grid, the first 45,000 miles or so of driving, the EV emits more CO2 cumulatively than the conventional a gasoline powered SUV. But after that, it starts to save it. And after 120,000 miles, the Volvo analysis estimates that its EV will have a cumulative emissions reductions of about 30%. So they're a little better than the other one. 30% um, not, is not nothing. But again, the, their analysis is filled with assumptions, but the average, average uh, emissions from the average kilowatt hour on the EU grid and assumptions about the missions associated with the fabrication of the battery. And that's where the assumptions are, are really wild. If you look at the life cycle emissions and look at the variations in them, uh, you get very different results. In fact, let's credit Volvo with stating in their study, and it's again, it's online, 
and I'll quote, the choice of methodology has a significant impact on the total carbon footprint, end quote. What do they mean by that? Well, one of them, one of them as Volvo pointed out, is that they used, they used in a global average uh, electricity fuel mix to get the CO2 emissions or an EU average fuel mix. They used an average, a low average number for the emissions from the production of copper to make the battery. And they used a low average number for the production of cobalt and for nickel. That may sound reasonable to use an average or even a low average because you could ask for that in your supply chains. I, I, you, could, you think you could specify that, but you can't. You can't specify it. It's very difficult in that industry, borderline impossible. And if you take into account the reality in the supply chains, you see lots of variabilities, not least because the vast majority of the materials that are mined or processed are done in countries where in their supply chains, they have coal-dominated grids. In the mining industries, energy consumption is coal, natural gas, and oil, almost over, uh, I would say 100%, 99%. There's a, essentially no other fuel forms used to mine, move, and process the minerals needed to make EVs. So these numbers have the illusion of precision. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, uh, I confess, it's my favorite paper, <laughs> just, just me, but their reporters, not, not their editorial staff, uh, undertook an investigation in 2021 to see what the truth was about EV emissions. And they uh, commissioned a study and then the Wall Street Journal published the results of the study. You know, they, they the newspaper commissioned the study. And uh, they concluded, quote, the data show that switching from gas to electric vehicles will make a huge impact, unquote. Okay, that's a pretty confident statement from the paper of record, at least in my view. Uh, but let's you, you can go to the study that they commissioned. It was done by a team at the University of Toronto. Again, the study uh, honestly publishes the assumptions they made to reach this conclusion. Keyword here, assumptions that they made. A key assumption that was made that's in the study is the emissions associated with fabricating the battery. Obviously, it's a key assumption. It's what I've been talking about. What they don't, they tell you what the number is. What they don't tell you is that there is a range for that number because we don't know that exact number. The upper end of that range is 250% greater than the number they used for that study. In fact, the number they used for the study wasn't even the average. It was the low end of the range. So we don't know what the real number is, but we know it's not always the low end of the range. It could just as often be the high end of the range. <clears throat> and as I'll talk about, excuse me, in, a, uh, in the next episode, it's not often in the high end of the range. It is almost certainly the case that future minerals production will all be at the high end of the range, which we'll get to in the next episode. Let's just stick with where we are in the known knowns in today's uh, mining industry. So the Wall Street Journal is not alone in, in reaching this, you know, this hyperbolic conclusion that there's going to be a huge impact. It's a claim that's parroted by government's proponents everywhere. It's enshrined in the mandates and the bans. That's the whole point. Uh, but, the, but again, the bottom line is we don't no, it's an entire range of known unknowns. In a technical review uh, that was published a couple of years ago, about 18 months ago, I think, uh, there's a technical review of 50, 50, 50 different uh, studies. So it's a meta study of study, you know, the study of studies looked at 50 different analyses of the life cycle emissions, the upstream emissions of electric vehicles. And what that meta study showed is that the conclusions of these 
uh, different studies, the emissions associated with producing EVs, producing batteries, the bottom lines varied by a factor of five, by a factor of five. I mean, this is an incredible range. So it's meaningless with such a big range to use the average, which is what analysts are doing. It's meaningless to, then to use the average associated with a tiny battery, which is what analysts are doing. This is not honest analysis. And when I say analysts, I mean proponents uh, and, and government analysts, if you like, that are pushing the EV mandates. The three big kahunas, sort of to put this in context and, and uh, give you a sense of what the implications are, the three big kahunas that make the biggest difference in the actual emissions from fabricating batteries are the size of the battery pack, the location of the, of the mines to get the materials, and the locations of the refineries. That those, those issues utterly dominate what we know or don't know about the, the emissions from making an EV. And those emissions that, again, keep beating this death, that offset or wipe out the emissions saved by not burning gasoline. So in the 50, in the 50 study review that I mentioned, the average, or rather median, so differences you probably know, the median battery assumed in all those studies was 30 kilowatt hours, 30 kilowatt hours. So the average battery is 60 to 90 kilowatt hours in the vehicles being sold. Most of them are in the 90 kilowatt hour range. Again, 90 kilowatt hour battery has three times the materials of a 30 kilowatt hour battery, which means it has three times the emissions upstream. Similarly, the location of the mine matters a lot. I mean, the copper, and again, using IEA data, IEA publishes the fact that the emissions associated with mining copper can vary by 200% and by, for nickel by 300%, depending on where it's mined in the world. And that has to do with not just with the nature of the ore, but the distance of the mine from markets, how far you transport things, the kinds of mines, the kind of ore. It, it's just a, it's extraordinarily complex. It's difficult to, to know. And of course, getting accurate information about it is complicated by the fact that about 80 to 90% of all the relevant minerals are mined outside of the United States and the EU. Then the refineries, so the, when the rock is dug up, you, you're not digging up pure copper. Uh, there aren't nuggets of copper. It's interstitial in the ore. You have to grind up and uh, process, which means literally dissolve with energy intensive chemicals. You have to dissolve the rock and chemically separate the uh, minerals from the rock. This is all, all very energy intensive, these refining processes and making assumptions that the emissions from that refinery, refinery, which by the way, is what is done, use an average global grids kilowatt hour, utterly meaningless. You'd wanna know where, where are the minerals specifically mined and refined? Where are they refined? Well, we know for aluminum where it's refined, not, not here, right? We, we know the aluminum is not refined primarily in America, we've, we've lost our aluminum industry. Yet there are some studies that assume that US EVs, the aluminum for US EVs, will be produced on US grids that are powered by hydro dams. Well, it's just prima facie silly, but it's in the study and it's, it's stated. And in, you then reach a conclusion about upstream emissions that is at, not only utterly meaningless, it's fundamentally fraudulent. You could aspirationally want to have the aluminum produced on hydro dams in America, but that's not what's gonna happen in, the, in anything like the near future in America. In fact, China refines a 50 to 90% of the world's suite of energy minerals. The CO2 emissions associated with refining minerals in China is 150% greater than the CO2 emissions 
refining energy minerals in the EU or the United States. Those are the numbers that should be used. Those are the numbers that are not are not being used. So, you know, some to their credit, some of the uh, EV proponents imagine adding clarity to that. They th- there's this is not a uh, 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 news, if you like to honest analysts in the EV proponent community that uh, materials are difficult to acquire. They take a lot of energy and cause emissions elsewhere. In fact, many of the automakers from Mercedes and Volkswagen to Volvo and Ford would like to, would like to have, would like to mandate far more clarity in the sourcing issues. They like to create rules and regulations. People have proposed offering sensors and tracking and software that could in theory document all the data you need to know about where the minerals come from and whether they're be, minerals being mined by children, for example, which we know what's going on all over the world, uh, whether there are uh, other countries who are following environmental regulations that we would like them to follow, whether or not they're using energy intensive processes and causing CO2 emissions, all, all of the uh, goals to create transparency in, in the global mining industry are, are appropriate. Uh, you could even say they're noble goals, but you... <laughs> Let me let, tolerate me skeptical that they're going to happen anytime soon and that they're going to be easy. It's far more difficult to get transparency in energy minerals than it is to, um, to do the equivalent of conflict-free uh, sourcing of diamonds. Much more difficult, much more opaque industry, uh, much bigger industry, uh, obviously. So these are the kinds of uncertainties that take place before you make any guesses about all the other variables, about how an EV is fueled and where it's fueled. Uh, whether you're assuming that you're getting your electricity on the average uh, day at, on the EU grid or a day where it's mostly wind or in a part of the United States in a state where you're getting most of your electricity from a coal plant or a natural gas plant, or whether you happen to be charging at just the right time that's mostly solar uh, on the grid where you happen to be. Those are variables too. Those variables matter. They matter enormously. Uh, they matter so much that let's give you the bottom line here on how this uh, impacts the numbers you keep hearing that EVs result in profound or huge emissions reductions. If you model these assumptions, if you make forecasts based on the real world emissions associated with making a battery, you get higher emissions, obviously, before the battery gets and the car gets delivered to your driveway. And then if you model the emissions that occur when people actually charge your vehicle and where they're actually charging your vehicle, not the hypothetical, which is also doable. You get also, you also get higher emissions for operating an EV. Yes, you know, people said they want more wind and solar. One day and inevitably there will be more wind and solar. But Germany and Europe have done the experiment. It takes decades to get hydrocarbons off the grid. It's not going to happen in the timeframes we're talking about here. So if you model the real grids that exist and will exist for the next next decade, and when people really charge your EVs, what you find is that the average uh, EVs life cycle emissions pretty much double. Uh, And that, that means that they emit, in that modeling that I just gave you, emit more carbon dioxide over the over the operating life than the baseline internal combustion engine. But if I assume that in the future, I'm going to use these subsidies, for example, to in- induce people to buy more efficient internal combustion engines, because those exist, people just aren't buying them. If you can make the comparison between what's possible with the EV and what's possible with the conventional vehicle, the gap widens even further. Or put differently, there are perfectly reasonable scenarios based just on the, the variables I've 
told you, in which you would find some EVs over their lifespan will emit 50% less CO2 in driving an external combustion engine that's inefficient. And some EVs over the lifetime will emit 50% more carbon dioxide than a consumer who bought an efficient internal combustion engine. Which it will be depends on behaviors of people and behaviors critically of things that you don't have easy control over, not the people are easy to control, the locations and sources of all the materials and minerals. Let me wrap this one up with some things that I'm probably in a lot of your uh, minds, especially if you're listened this far and you're uh, an EV a battery uh, follower, <laughs> you like this field. The one thing that most people are thinking, well, we'll change the battery chemistry. There's lots of battery chemistries. I'll make the batteries differently so I can change the minerals that we need. Uh, famously or infamously, you can get rid of cobalt and all the supply chain problems with children mining cobalt, but not using cobalt in the battery and using more nickel instead. You can switch to a class of battery called lithium iron phosphate, which has neither nickel nor cobalt. So you change you change battery chemistries. There's lots of battery, battery chemistries. In fact, there's at least a dozen uh, proven viable lithium battery chemistries all have different combinations of metals. Some use manganese, for example. Uh, as I said, the lithium iron phosphate uses a form of iron with lithium, and rather than uh, you know rather rather than nickel or cobalt. The challenge is that all of them they're all different. They all result in different performances for the batteries, different energy densities, different charge rates. Uh, the, the ease with which they can be kept safe, that is not light themselves on fire, uh, but they're all manageable. But, but in terms of what I'm talking about, that is the upstream emissions, there's very little There's very little significant variation. All the batteries weigh in the order of a thousand pounds. If you go to the, the now widely touted lithium iron phosphate chemistry, and if you want the same range, because it's a lower energy density chemistry, then the battery's heavier by 20 or 30%. It's a lower energy density battery, which means you need more aluminum and you need more copper and you need more steel and you need more polymers and other chemicals. Bottom line is the, the batteries are heavy regardless of the chemistry. The heavy weight is associated with lots of metals and minerals. The most important ones that have in your head are not the marginal ones like manganese, or nickel or cobalt from the viewpoint of emissions. They might be from the viewpoint of supply chains, supply chain ethics, or supply chain costs. But in terms of CO2 emissions, the big dogs, of course, are things like copper and aluminum, the polymers, the lithium itself, and graphite that all batteries have. So there's no, there's no big savings from changing the battery chemistries in the context of dramatically changing the variabilities in uh, upstream emissions from, from, producing the, uh, from producing the batteries. Then the rest of the vehicle has embodied emissions as well. As I said before, the copper itself is not on the battery. There's a lot more copper in an electric vehicle because it's got copper wound electric motors and copper electric bus bar. It doesn't have a steel drive shaft. It has electric, electric wires. And so a typical electric vehicle has several hundred pounds more copper uh, than a typical internal combustion engine, regardless, regardless of the battery chemistry. And the embodied emissions from the extra copper and the aluminum alone are equal to uh, burning gasoline to drive 10,000 miles, just the copper. Then we have other factors. I mean, the, the assumptions people make about battery lifespan. If you assume the battery lasts the life of the vehicle, great. But if it doesn't last the life of the vehicle, then you're doubling the emissions from the battery because you have to replace the battery. Could the batteries need to be replaced? Well, the technical literature shows that fast charging degrades battery life. And the more people do fast charging, 
the more likely it is a significant percentage of the cars on the road will have to have their battery changed at least once during the lifespan. That's not just expensive, it's CO2 intensive. Uh, again, uh, manufacturers may make claims, but the claims about the battery lifespan are entirely anchored in assumptions about how you charge your battery, how you treat it. Uh, overnight charging uh, is kind to batteries. They'll certainly last the life of the vehicle. Charging on the road fast is not kind to batteries. It can cut battery life in half. Other assumptions that are in all these models are how far the vehicles are driven, actually driven. So when you make a, a comparison between an EV and a conventional vehicle, the comparison where you see a net emissions reductions over 120,000 miles assumes that that particular model of EV will be driven for 120,000 miles. EVs are changing rapidly, much more so than internal combustion engines. So will that will that car be driven 120,000 miles? The current, the current fleet of EVs are almost certainly not going to be driven as many miles as the current fleet of internal combustion engines. The data show that the average EV owner, the average EV owner is driving somewhere between 30% to 50% fewer miles per year than the average internal combustion engine car. So put differently, that means if it's if the latter category, the that EV owner in driving that vehicle over its quote, operating life for that EV owner never repays its CO2 debt incurred in making the EV compared to just having driven an internal combustion engine the same miles. And lastly, I, I should point out that these comparisons uh, are all anchored in a compared to an internal combustion engine's fuel efficiency. That is, compared to a static number that the internal combustion engine five years from now that you're comparing it to will be the same efficiency as the engine today. You hear said all the time that EVs are getting better quickly, but internal combustion engines are at the end of their technologically useful life. That's just nonsense. Uh, engine technology has been improving dramatically for years. It's still improving dramatically. In the several technical analyses of future uh, engine technology, 30 to 50% improvements in fuel efficiency are not only technically feasible, but are already been demonstrated and built. I'll put differently, 30 to 50% reduction in life cycle CO2 emissions from noble, billable, more efficient internal combustion engines are possible. If you compare the future EV to a future internal combustion engine, logic would suggest you compare it to a more efficient future internal combustion engine that people might buy or might be induced to buy. And if you do that, again, you self-evidently erode the ostensible uh, savings in the gap. And in fact, you can totally reverse the gap. If you assume an EV made uh, from minerals that will be sourced the way mining companies are sourcing them against an internal combustion engine that can be built, you flip the numbers. That is the EV emits more CO2. So it's, it is, I hope by this point, obvious that the upstream minerals factor. It's a dominant variable affecting EV emissions. Everything about the future of EV emissions anchored in mining, humanity's oldest industry. So by definition, estimating future EV emissions requires guesses, guessing, uh, and making assumptions of the future of global mining, where we find lots of known unknowns. I can still hear objections in many of your minds over the internet's ether. I know I can hear a lot of you thinking, Technology, technology and recycling can solve all these problems with upstream minerals and the mining and the need for the quantities of minerals. Yes, there's a lot of truth to the fact that technology solves a lot of those problems and reduces, reduces quantities of minerals, better batteries, 
different kinds of batteries. Recycling reduces, by definition, the quantity of minerals you need. But as they say, the devil is in the details when it comes to those things. And you need to understand the underlying realities, the state of play in terms of the engineering of mining, how much better we can make it, and the state of play with respect to recycling, how much difference it could make. We'll get to that, these geological and practical realities uh, in the next episode in part three of this theories on the impossible dream of an all EV future. So until the next episode, and with the usual reminder that uh, if you like these podcasts um, and you want to share them, rate them, uh, let us know what you think, send us questions, especially on this subject. Be happy to answer them. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Optimist.